Amen to all of that. I'm Clyde, in case you don't know, um, from Vancouver, Washington. And I gotta tell you, it's worth the trip in the rain uh, to be here and worship with you uh, this morning. I got a phone call about an hour ago asking if I could come and preach for a pastor that was sick. So he saved me from that. <laughs> so we're going to be looking at Psalm 73, starting with verse 21. We're following up on what we looked at last week. Um, if a young person uh, wants to be an excellent athlete, or if they want to be an excellent musician, or maybe a cook, or a welder, there's one thing in common with all of them that they have to do, and you know what that is. They have to practice, right? And they have to practice, and they have to practice, and they can never let up. And when they become that thing, they get that excellency, they can't quit practicing, they have to keep it up, or they begin to lose it. Well, it's the same thing in our lives as Christians, that if we want to draw near to God, we have to practice, we have to do it. We have to meditatively read our Bible. We need to spend time in prayer. We need to gather together. We need to serve. Really those four things we need to continually do to draw near to God. And why do we want to draw near to God? Hopefully I don't have to ask that question, but why in particular as we're going to see in this psalm that as we grow closer to God, a new lens comes into place. Last week we saw two lenses that Asaf wore. He wore the foolish lens of envy, and then when he went to church, when he went into the sanctuary, which, where he actually worked, um, that lens fell off and he got the lens of the sanctuary. But there's a better lens than the lens of the sanctuary, and that's the lens of relationship that we're going to be looking at today. So as we regularly, prayerfully, meditatively read our Bibles, it develops faith, it develops understanding, it develops the knowledge of God and what he is and what he is doing. It develops the fruit of the Spirit. It develops Christ-likeness. And these things naturally become part of us as we put them into practice uh, through the word of God and prayer and gathering together. So we want these uh, lenses, this lens of relationship, but we have to draw near to God. It's not automatic for a Christian to have this lens of relationship we're going to look at this morning. You have to work at it. You have to be drawing near to God. And he's the one that reveals to you uh, the four things we're going to see this morning. The text uh, is, is naturally broken up into four sections, two verses apiece. And first of all, we're going to look at, at 21, uh, verse 21. Asif is looking back at what he has already written in uh, verses 1 through about 14 about the foolishness of envying the, the arrogant uh, wicked. And so the first thing that as he draws near to God he realizes is that um, our relationship with God reveals our silliness. I could have said stupidity but that's for some reason, I went with S's today. So our silliness, it really is silly. When I think when we looked, there was part of what we looked at last week that was just kind of funny because it was so silly, so ridiculous what, what Asif was envying. So verse 21, the first thing that's silly is that really it was killing him. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. Now the word soul, and this is my pet peeve with the translators, is why don't they translate the word? Because the word is actually heart, not soul. Hebrews have a word for soul, nephesh. Uh, this is the word for heart. 
He meant the heart. He meant that physical thing that beats. That when my, my heart was embittered or soured, it's uh, like the process, especially uh, when you put yeast into dough and it makes the yeast, ri yeast rise through a fermenting process. Well, that's good for dough and it makes bread tasty, but it's not good for your heart to have it fermented and to have it enlarged or whatever. But he's saying is that it embittered my heart, not just my spirit, not just my soul, but it actually embittered my, my physical heart. And then he says, when I was pricked in heart, well, that's what the translator said, but there the word heart is actually kidneys. So my kidneys were pricked. In other words, I could feel that there was something wrong in my heart when I envied it just constricted it or, or made it feel bad and inside, deep inside, there was something wrong. And the medical profession now knows that especially bitterness and anger um, and envy as well eat away at us. It kills us slowly. Um, and some, for many of you, perhaps you became uh, you prayed to receive Christ later in life and you felt something immediately wash in and something wash away. I know that's the experience of many. I was four and I don't remember it so I didn't have the experience but I had a friend way back when I first went to college. Uh, he had been in jail I think for armed robbery and he told me he was filled with hate and with anger and one day a man came in and told the gospel and immediately he said, yes, I want that. Pray to receive Christ. He said it all disappeared. All the pain, I mean all the anger, all the hate, just like that was gone. Can you imagine how that felt? Wouldn't that feel good? So not envying, there's really three categories that eat away at us. Envy is one, envy, greed, discontent. And then the second is bitterness, holding grudges. Let them go. It's no good for you. It's eating you up. It isn't touching them at all. It just hurts you. And then anger. In the 60s and 70s, some of you may remember that there was a fad that we are to let our anger out. Just express your anger and it will go away. But we know now that's not true. Uh, there were seminars you could go to where you go out on the beach and yell at the waves. But now they know that expressing your anger actually deepens your anger. It doesn't let it go at all. And you've all known angry people. They're always angry. They express it, and it doesn't go away. So, but it eats inward. It's not good for us. He realized that, that my envy was killing me. And it's killing you if you're hanging on to envy or bitterness or anger. And then secondly, uh, he, it made him stupid. Uh, the second half of verse 21, or, or verse 22. I was brutish. Now, this word is a wild beast, um, not a puppy dog, not even a cow, a wolf, uh, a cougar, a bear, uh, something you don't want to encounter. He said it turned me into that. In other words, I was living by instinct, by tooth and nail, by getting what I could. Um, uh, not really thinking, because the next word is ignorant. That means no knowledge. Um, stupid. I was acting by instinct, uh, without thinking it through at all, stupidly. And then this uh, third phrase is my favorite word picture in the whole Bible. I was like a beast toward you. Now notice here, before I look at this, that he says toward you. This is a prayer. Now he's not, uh, it's not so much a confession that he had in the first half of the book, but he's praying to God. He's telling him, he's seeing as he's in his relationship with God, this is what I was. It's, it's, it is a confession to God, not to people, of this is what envy did to me. So this word beast is the word behemoth. 
Some of you may know that word. Um, it's only, um, I think, only once, one other time in the Bible, maybe twice, but it's in the book of Job, uh, verse, chapter 40, verse 15, starts the description of this creature. And if you read it, read it later at home, that's Job 40, 15. It's pretty obvious that it's a brontosaurus. It's a long neck creature. Um, it's not a hippopotamus. It doesn't fit, but a brontosaurus fits. So he says, I was a brontosaurus. Now, uh, the long neck beasts, uh, uh, back when they were alive, and obviously they knew about them at this time, um, their brain was so small that they had to have another brain in their tail to move their nether region. Um, so that's what he says I was. But it's more than that. He says, not only was I a stupid dinosaur, the dumbest there was, um, that needed two brains, it's, it's actually plural. So he says, I was like a herd of brontosaurus. You know, oh, what should we do today? Um, let's see, let's wallow in the Jordan and eat some grass. Okay, that's a good idea. Oh, maybe we should go over there. And they all go. He says, that was me, living by instinct, but not smart. Um, isn't that a fun word picture of brontosaurus? He didn't think that was in the Bible, but it is. So we can move on to that. He said, I acted silly, silly, and we do. We act foolish, we act stupid, we act silly when we're living um, away from uh, the presence of God. And then it gets positive after that. Our relationship with God reveals our security. This is a great text for Calvinists. Um, I don't know what you would think of it if you were an Arminian, but I doubt that you'd stay here very long. Um, at this church, so I take for granted that you lean towards Brother Calvin. Nevertheless, so here, that's a great word, and there's many great words in this psalm. We've seen a few last week. Nevertheless, it's a grace word. So he says, this is what I was, and even in, in relationship with him, he wasn't an unbeliever. He was the, he was the worship leader, remember? Oh, by the way, I want to talk a moment about Asaph. Uh, this is quite possibly the only psalm of Asaph that David's friend wrote. There are more Asaphs, but they wrote later, some of them much later. So it was a family name that got handed down. They're the sons of Korah as well. Asaph was a son of Korah, as well as his cousins. They were all sons of Korah. Um, so later on, you'll read some psalms of Asaph that, that don't appear to be at the time of David. They're not. They're later. But he passed his name down. Anyway, that's just a side note that you probably don't even care about. Um, so nevertheless, even though I was in this condition, a horrible condition for a child of God, even though I was there, nevertheless, I am continually with you. I am continually with you. Now, this word continually means without interruption. So all the time that Asaph was envying and thinking this foolish way, he was never not with God. I am continually with you. Even when I think uh, the crazy thoughts that I thought, even when I do something crazy, not that falling off of the cliff, that would have been something else. I'm not sure what, but I think it would have been evidence that he was not a child of God. If he had fallen off the cliff, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll have to listen to last week's sermon. I don't have time to go over it again. Although I heard that I was short last week. So I've been short all my life. <laughs> I am continuing with you. Why? Here is a powerful uh, verse if you know the grammar, the Hebrew grammar. Why am I continuing with you? You hold my right hand. Now, 
Notice, first of all, not I hold your right hand. That wouldn't work. I don't know about you, but I'd be letting go many times. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. And off I'd go. But we can't get away because he's holding our right hand, not vice versa. But the word hold is a powerful word because it is, um, it's a done deal in its past tense uh, that goes on to today for Asaph. In other words, sometime in the past, Lord, you grabbed my right hand and you've never let go and you never will let go. That's why I can continually be with you. Not because of me. If it was because of me, it would be sporadic, if at all. But because you hold my right hand, I can't get away. I heard one time someone say that when I was talking to them about, or the conversation was about God, uh, no one can take us out of the Father's hand, Jesus said. That he has you, if you're his child, in his hand, and no one can, can deliver you from his hand. And the person said, well, but we can jump out of his hand. And it's like, really? Really? You can jump out of God's hand? You can't jump that high. And he's grasped your hand. You can't get away. Even when you want to, you can't get away. You could be squirming. Ever see a child wants to get away from their parent, but the parent knows they're not safe? You know, the child is going everywhere here, but the hand's stronger. And so the, the parent's hand has hold of that child. They can't get away. That's how God is with you. If you've prayed to receive Jesus Christ, if he's come in and made you uh, born again with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't get away. Don't try. Just go with it. Draw near to him because he's going to drag you there if you don't want to draw near to him and you don't like that process. So he, he helps. And then the next verse, verse 25 um, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to, the glory, to glory. So he realizes that God's got a hold of him, and he's not going anywhere, and that's security. And then verse 24, the security is that he is a wise God, a powerful God, a God and a loving God who's taking care of him, hanging on to him. You guide me with your counsel. Notice here he doesn't say, um, I try to find your will. Um, he says, you guide me. There's a lot of angst in the church, not necessarily this church, but the church in a whole, about trying to find the will of God. He says, he'll show it to you. Our job is to do it when he shows us the will. We don't have to spend a lot of time uh, groaning about what God's will is. Should I marry this woman? Do you like her? Do you love her? You want to live with her for the rest of your life? Yeah, well, then marry her. Obviously, that's God's guidance. He brought her into your life or vice versa, or whatever it is. You want to quit your job because you got a better job offer. God's not going to come down and tell you what to do. Uh, is this a better job? Would it hurt your family to quit your job? Would it be better? Yeah. Think it through. So there's many things that uh, we don't need him to specifically say, do this. But what we do need is his counsel. And we have it right here. This is God's counsel. So if if anything that we want to do is, is contrary to what we learn in the Bible, uh, then we don't do it. Because it's contrary to God's counsel, it's not his guiding. God tells you uh, to say, um, commit adultery, or if, if in your mind God's telling you to have, uh, commit adultery with your neighbor's wife, it's not God. I don't know what it is, but it's not God, because that's contrary to the word of, word of God. That's kind of a, 
Um, uh, I don't know what it is. So, if God is going to counsel you, if God is going to guide you with his counsel, and his counsel is your Bible, then what do you have to do? You have to study it. You have to read it. You have to talk about it. You have to have systematically go through it. You don't have to do it in a year. Some of you are not readers, and you can't read it in a year, but you can read a sentence and read it again and again through the day. You can read a paragraph, perhaps, but if you are a reader, there's no reason why you can't read through your Bible in at least two years. Um, you have to do that. You have to know the Word of God if you want to be guided by it. And this part of growing near to God is reading His Word. And as we read His Word, then He guides us through that, through many different ways. And you're going to talk about that in your, in your small groups. You guide me with your counsel and afterward. What a powerful word that is. Afterwards. So through this life, He guides us with His counsel and afterward. There's an afterward. We don't need to uh, wonder is there an afterword? We don't have to wonder if this is the end. Death is so final in our view. Um, it's nice to know that really it's not final. It's just the beginning. There is an afterword, and afterward there is no death, there is no pain, there is no wonderment, there is no um, betrayal, or any of those things that we experience here. There's an afterword. Afterwards, you'll receive me to glory. Now, this word receive is more active than that. It's actually the word to take um, or to fetch, you can say. Jesus said that, uh, behold, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. At our death, Jesus is there to receive him unto himself. He promised that. So he's there to fetch us. And he fetches us where? He fetches us to glory. At Mount Sinai, the glory of God came down on the mountain, and it was burning, and it was fiery. And a year later, after they built the tabernacle, the glory of God came, and it entered that tabernacle. And so in the midst of, of the people, they couldn't go in there and look at it, but they knew that the glory of God was in their tabernacle, but they couldn't go in and see it. Only one man once a year, uh, with uh, lots of protocols he had to follow, uh, could go in and go in quickly and have incense burning around because the point was not to go in and gaze at the glory of the Lord. The point was to go in and offer atonement for the people and for himself. But nobody could see the glory of God, but they all wanted to. You see, with the psalmist, they longed to see the glory of God. Um, even Moses longed to see the glory of God, who saw it more than anybody else, but they couldn't. Then one day uh, in the fields of Bethlehem, the glory of God filled the earth, filled the sky, not the earth, but filled the sky. There was that glory from Mount Sinai, from the tabernacle, there for those shepherds to see. And then skipping forward in Revelation chapter 4, um, so I don't know what you think about your own death, about afterward. But spend some time in Revelation chapter 4, because you're going to get there, and the veil will be drawn back, and there will be the seraphim and cherubim and the living ones, and they'll all be sh shouting and praising God, and rank upon rank of angels ascending and descending and doing their angel thing. There'll be a great host of believers singing praise to the Lord, and you're joining, you're going to enter into a a worship service that's already going on. But there on the throne 
in blazing glory is the Lord God, his glory. We can't describe it. We've never seen it. But when we see that glory surrounded by life, um, we'll be stunned, we'll be amazed, we'll be overwhelmed, we'll fall to our knees uh, into glory and into eternity. It's something to look forward to. It's not something to fear. Afterward, you will receive, you'll come and get me and take me to glory. That's our future. That's our security. It's a done deal. If you have Jesus Christ in your heart, the Holy Spirit in you, it's a done deal. You're going to glory. And then our relationship with God reveals God's sufficiency. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? Now remember that Asaph, the Old Testament saints didn't go to heaven when they died. They went to Shell, um, and Jesus taught us that there's two compartments in Shell. There's uh, paradise, where he promised the thief uh, beside him on the cross that they would go to that day. And then there was the place of torment. Um, but they, they went down to what Jesus called the center of the earth, the shell. They didn't go up to heaven. So Asaph isn't necessarily thinking about um, the people in heaven. There was only one human being in heaven at the day, in the days of Asaph, and that was Enoch. Elijah had not yet been born. All these saints, when Jesus was resurrected, and it's a debatable thing, but I believe all the saints uh, left shell and went to heaven, and they're all up there now waiting for us to join them. Well, they're not waiting for us to join them. They're just enjoying the presence of God. Um, but whom have I in heaven uh, besides you, but you? Now, if you are in need, say, of redemption, maybe meditate on this this afternoon. If you're in need of redemption, you look at heaven. Who there can help me with that? Just God, just Jesus. That's all. Uh, if you're in some kind of physical need, who in heaven would you go to rather than the creator of heaven and earth? Uh, he's the one that has all the power and all the knowledge and all the wisdom to help you. And you can go down the line. What is your need? If you look at heaven, who's there? Even now that all the saints are there, some of them whom you love, uh, who can help you? Uh, only God. Only God can help you. So that's what he's saying, is that when I need help and I look to heaven with all these mighty beings that are there, only you can offer me what I need, especially redemption. And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Notice how he, he moves from no one to nothing, because there are people on earth that we desire, people that we love, and we can't help uh, but do that. And it's a natural thing. It's only when those people become too big in our eyes and become... Uh, idols that it gets a little off but he doesn't say there's no people that I desire there's no thing that I desire we sang about all this today um, that if, if I had all the possessions in the world if they were all mine it's too small a gift to give to you so that's the idea here uh, think about what is there in this earth what thing is there in this earth or possession that you would trade for God Hopefully in this room, there's nothing that you would trade for God. In fact, our hearts are that we would give it all. That's what we sang this morning, that we would give it all for God. Because being in the presence of God is, uh, there's nothing that compares to it. There's no thing, there's no created thing that compares to the presence of God. 
There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. If there is something on earth that you desire besides God, that's idolatry. And you need to get it out of your life uh, because there really is nothing that's worth desiring. Then verse 26. Remember, this is about the sufficiency of God uh, in heaven and on earth. He's sufficient in both places. Then my flesh and my heart may fail. The flesh is that part, this particular word is that part that keeps you moving, keeps you alive. Um, and then my heart, they translate heart this time, which is right, they may fail. Now this word fail is an interesting word. It's a very broad word, and it's not, um, fail is the most negative way to translate it. It wouldn't na naturally be the way to translate this word. The actual idea is to be accomplished, to be finished, and that's how we ought to see this. My, my body, my heart um, will come to the point where it's accomplished its task that God has given us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, God has already laid out the, the, um, the good deeds for us to do uh, long beforehand. It's all laid out for us to do them and we will one day be done. Let me read what Paul says, he actually preaches it better. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, this whole ch chapter is good for you to meditate, but we're just going to look verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. So he's in the Mamertine prison. He's ready to die. He knows that Nero is going to have him killed. So he writes this. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. That's this word we're looking at in Psalm 73. I've finished the race. I've, I've fought the good fight. Um, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. God had a course for Paul. He ran it. He ran it well. There was more he wanted to do. He wasn't done in his mind, but he was done in God's mind. He was finished. And so the time comes when we finished our course. The job that God has put us on earth to do, we, we, we're done. So it's not so much that our body and our heart have failed. They will fail because we're done. And we wear out. And how great it is that we wear out in the work of God. I hope, that when, I hope that when I die, I'll, have, I'll be scheduled to preach the next day. It's like, oh, you know, uh, Clyde's with Jesus, so the middle schoolers are going to do a puppet show or something. I don't know. I just hope that, you know, I may get dementia that I can't preach, so I'll just be praying. I'm probably about the same person. Hopefully it's you, right? Um, but it's the same thing with you. You're, you won't ever be done, I hope as a child of God. We'll never be done praying and we'll always be, you know, I, I need to pray a little bit more, those grandkids or those kids or my parents, whatever it is, I need to pray for them. But when their time is up, then it's up. But God is the strength of my heart. In other words, our time's not going to be up until it's up. Our time's not going to be up until we finish the course that he laid out for us. And then when that time comes up, and until that time, he supports our heart and our flesh, I would imagine, um, so that we're going to go until he says, that's it, this is the end. Um, it's time to come home, I'm going to come fetch you. So isn't that comforting? 
It's comforting to me. I don't have to worry about it. That, well, you know, we try to eat right, get exercise, and do all those things uh, because we think we can speed up the process, but I don't know. But when, when the time is over, it's over, and God comes to get us. Meanwhile, he takes care of us. And then, you're the strength of my heart, so as long as I have this heart here and my portion forever. We sang that as well. I think it was the last song. My portion forever. So what does that mean? Uh, say you have someone that you love dearly that, has, it, that is gone, that has died, and they're with Jesus. So let's kind of picture them for a moment because this is, uh, we've never been face to face with God and with Jesus. So what's it like? So let's picture that. So supposing uh, she is now sitting at the feet of Jesus like Mary, just listening to him, asking him questions, uh, maybe pouring precious oil on his feet, maybe part of the reward that she got, or maybe he's leaning back against Jesus' chest, um, asking him anything he wants, and, and he's answering, you are my portion. It's that close. But then imagine Jesus in his in all his royalty, in all his godly power and glory, um, taking them by the hand, leading them into the garden, and saying, I've always loved you. I loved you when I spoke the sun into flame. I loved you when I put Leviathan in the water to play. I loved you as I hung on the cross and through burial and resurrection. On the day you were born, I was there. I held your little hand. I loved you. On the day you died, I was there. I wrapped you in my arms and I loved you. I love you now. I will always love you. You are my portion. But there's a darkness in this part of the psalm. The next point. Drawing near to God reveals that there's a separation. There's two paths. There's a path away from God to destruction. There's a path toward God to life. There's only two paths. There's not a middle ground. You're either moving away from God to destruction or toward God to life. He puts it this way. For behold, think about this. When you see the word behold in the Bible, it means think about this. Picture it. Those who are far from you shall perish. See, he's, now, he's not talking now about what he saw in the, in the sanctuary about their terrible end, which we saw last week. He's now seeing his relationship and their relationship. Their relationship is not so much anymore all the terrible things they're doing. Now their relationship is that they're far from him. What's the natural end when you're far from God? It's got to be destruction because God's the creator, the life giver. If you reject him, then you reject life. And so destruction is the only other option. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. See how he is praying all this. So why in the world, he's thinking, was I so foolish to envy these people? You put the end to end. So God, he says, you're going to actually be proactive in destroying them. 
those who are unfaithful to you. That's the dark path. And then the path of life, verse 28, for, but for me, it is good to be near God. This is the exact opposite of what he said in verse 13 that we saw last week, where he said that it was in vain that I kept my hands pure and my heart pure. This is the exact opposite. It's good for me to be near God. In fact, he circles back to verse 1, where he said, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. Now he's saying, because he's been drawing in relationship with God and he sees that life in God is good. But this word to be near um, is actually broader than that, and that is um, it's active and ongoing. So to be drawing near to God is good. The very process of go, drawing God near to God is good. You don't ever f- feel near to God, do you? It always seems like there's some barrier there. But it's that process of drawing near to God. We're way nearer than we think because already we saw that our eyes are open in relationship, that he's hanging on to us and will forever. Um, but he says it's good. There's so many good things, and I want you to talk about it in your small groups um, about how good it is just to be on that path to God here in this earth. Then he says, I've made the Lord God my refuge. Why? Because nothing else works. There is nothing else in, in heaven and earth that can be our refuge and won't one day fail us. So only God can be our refuge, the one we go to, the one we count on, the one we trust in. And so prayerfully um, looking to God, Uh, for guidance, but also just for help in our life as we ask others to pray for us and we watch God work. Then he says that I may tell of all your works. So do that. When you give a prayer request, give a follow-up. This is what God has done. This is amazing. God usually does things in ways that we didn't plan, sometimes didn't want, but he comes through. And sometimes we don't see it right away. Maybe it'll take a year. Maybe it'll take 10 years. Maybe we won't know until we get to glory, and then we're not going to do that here, tell of your works, because we don't know what they are. But the day is going to come in glory when we're going to look back at it all and say it was all worth it. It was all good. Even the very, very painful times, because God is good. Let's pray. Father, surely you are good to your people to those who trust you, to those weak as we are, are following in your footsteps. Help us not to be silly by letting the things of this world creep in as we spoke of in our confession and overshadow your glory and holiness. We thank you for the security we have in Christ. It's not just our doctrine, it's scripture. It's what we are, we're secure because it's about you, not about us. We couldn't stay in your presence, but you keep us, thank you. And you are sufficient. Oh, so often we think you're not, we worry, we fret, we're angry. But you are always sufficient. You are, you are almighty God. And there's only one way, and that is Jesus Christ. 
everything about our future and presence depends on Jesus Christ because there's no other way. In his name we pray, amen.